1: When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, Is there a door behind all those spiders? Ah. Ah. It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation.
2: (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't.
0: Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax,
2: you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Democrats have an eye on the midterms as they prepare to pass most of Joe Biden's agenda in one giant bill. While Republicans seem to believe that their path to victory runs right through Donald Trump. Then The Atlantic's Adam Sewer is here to talk to Dan about his new book, The Cruelty is the Point. But first... Don't miss this week's Hysteria, where Aaron and Alyssa are joined by Tien Tran and Jalissa Arce to discuss this year's controversy-ridden Olympic Games, the IOC's problematic rules, and how we can continue to support our favorite athletes. And check out this week's episode of Keep It, where Black Widow star David Harbour stops to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, mentoring the Stranger Things kids, and even his relationship with singer Lily Allen. Big shows this week. Big shows. (laughs) All right. Let's get to the news. Uh, because we love you, we are not going to depress you with another conversation about Joe Manchin and the filibuster and all the shit that Congress can't seem to get done. We are instead going to focus on the good news. In addition to the bipartisan infrastructure deal, uh, which the White House apparently refers to as the BIF <laughs> internally, we have learned, um, Democrats now seem to be united around the need to pass a budget reconciliation bill that spends at least $2 trillion on climate, health care, education, housing, and more, all paid for by raising taxes on corporations and the 1%. The president tried to drum up excitement for his agenda in a barn burner of a speech in Crystal Lake, Illinois, on Wednesday. Here he is just selling the hell out of this plan. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.
0: I know that's a boring speech, but it's an
2: important speech. Every speechwriter's dream ad-lib, Dan. (laughs) The end of a speech. I know that's a boring speech. Thanks, boss. Uh, So I want to start with the policy here before moving on to the politics, because I think this reconciliation bill has the potential to be the most progressive, transformative piece of legislation since the New Deal or the Great Society I think it deserves a lot more excitement and attention than it's getting. Am I wrong? What do you think?
1: I'm going to need you to re-ask the question because I fell asleep when you said reconciliation bill. I know. (laughs) We got to figure out number step number one. We got
2: to figure out the branding here because we got like we now we've got the Biff floating around. We've got. The, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, and I also don't blame them. We've got the American Families Plan, the American Jobs Plan. Some of it ended up in the BIF, and now all of the leftover stuff we're trying to package into something that everyone's calling the Budget Reconciliation Bill, which no one probably has any fucking idea what that means. So, understood if you're not either if you're not excited or you don't quite get what's going on. <laughs>
1: You know, I'm glad to talk about this with you, the author of many boring but important speeches, something that Barack Obama Mm. thought, but kindly, I guess, did not say out loud. Uh, (laughs) (laughs)
2: He uh, would say, he would say, he would say, I think that was a good speech. It was... uh... It was workmanlike. (laughs)
1: Workmanlike, yes, yes. uh... Or
2: he would say, or or the other thing he would say, if it was a speech that you you know he didn't like, he would say, "Uh, this was serviceable.
1: Yes. Workmanlike and serviceable are the faint praise that Barack Obama will will damn you with. Also, you're competent. That was competent. (laughs) (laughs) I never got that one. I never got that one. A competent messenger, a competent communications professional.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's
1: right. Um. This is a mess messaging wise, but it's not a mess of the White House's making, right? It's, I right. know you said we were not going to talk about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, but you cannot ask questions about them. It doesn't mean I can't That's answer fine. them in my answers. Uh,
2: I didn't want to focus on them. Yeah, I didn't want to focus not, on going, Don't round get me wrong. How it passes, who does what, all that kind of shit.
1: Basically, we had to negotiate this topic because if we were going to talk about infrastructure, we, the only way we would agree to do it would be if we did not talk about life in the mansion cul-de-sac. That's but. Right. For the purposes of unpacking this messaging mess, no one would – from a political storytelling perspective, no one would ever design this two-step process this way, where you would do this bipartisan bill that was good by any – in large, by any normal definition, but did not include the most exciting parts of your agenda – and you would not have to have a debate about where and when you would – what the sequence would be and all of that. Like that's not how it would be. And it's just like you and I know this, that if you're in a White House messaging meeting and the head of the ledge affairs office walks in, you're fucked. It's over. You're no longer doing the thing that your experience, instincts, and the polling says you should do, what makes the most sense, instead of developing a story that resonates with you know swing voters in Wisconsin or base voters in Georgia or anything like that. You're now being forced to talk in a way that keeps like some number of the problem solvers caucus on board, right? You are solving mm-hmm. a micro legislative problem with a macro messaging. I think this will get better when we know what's in the reconciliation package. The problem right now is there's a specific, and I said the word reconciliation. So I got to put two quarters in the jargon jar. I don't know. <laughs> the um,
2: Look, we're taking suggestions. Send them in. What are we going to call this thing? That's we're taking suggestions. I mean
1: it should just be the American Jobs Plan. We should just call it the American Jobs Plan.
2: But there's also the American Families Plan which which is which is going to be a lot of it.
1: That's fine, right? Combine them, right? The jo- <laughs> How about the American Jobs and Family Plan? Jobs
2: and Families Plan. Which should the AJFP? The yeah, AJFP. it should never That's be the AJFP. And I
1: and I also understand that as someone who thought ARRA for stimulus was terrible and ACA for affordable care act was terrible, but you got to write a lot of fucking emails in the White House and having to write those things out is exhausting and you end up with the biff. That's how it happens. But once you have an actual thing to sell that is the larger, more progressive, more transformative, more popular bill, it's going to help a lot. Because right now it's specific thing here, which is good, but not super exciting. And then other vague thing, which could be between $2 trillion and $6 trillion, could include this, could include that. We don't know. The other hard part to disentangle here is, you know, you have Biden and Secretary Buttigieg is other people running around the country selling the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Also, get mm-hmm. framework out of your language. Framework is a terrible term.
2: Horrible, right?
1: Deal.
2: Infrastructure is a terrible word. I mean, uh, we yeah. uh, we are so far we are so far fucking over the Rubicon yeah. with bad words, right? In, in this legislative process, right.
1: get. Well, you're selling this thing, and one of your major selling points for it is bipartisanship. Like they are going around, it's important, it shows that we can work together, it's progress to build on. And then on this other track, you're trying to pass this other thing that is also very popular with bipartisan groups of voters, but that is lacking the number one selling point of part one. And so it's very, it is, it is a mess. It is a mess because you're trying to pass a bill, not tell a story. And hopefully you can pass the bill and then tell the story, but this is why we Presidential approval ratings tend to go down the more enmeshed in legislative wrangling they get.
2: I just want to point out a few policies that could end up in this bill, each of which would be a huge deal on its own. Uh, Much of Biden's climate agenda, which would achieve net zero carbon emissions by no later than 2050, that was his campaign plan. Unlikely he gets all of it into the reconciliation bill. Uh, He got a little bit into the bipartisan infrastructure framework, and then hopefully he gets the rest of the climate stuff uh, into this reconciliation bill. I think chances of that are relatively good since so many Senate Democrats are saying no climate, no deal. I think Bernie Sanders, who's going to be writing the bill as the chairman of the Budget Committee, is going to make sure there's a lot of climate stuff. We could get a renewable, a clean energy standard, renewable energy standard in there, which would be gigantic, transformative. Um, So climate, huge. A permanent child tax credit, which is basically Social Security for kids, uh, would cut child poverty in half. We have that now, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, cut child poverty in half over the course of a, of a year. But if we make this permanent, that is essentially creating Social Security for kids forever. That is, it would be a huge achievement on its own. Uh, lower health care premiums and cheaper prescription drugs, hugely popular. Two years of free community college, universal preschool, universal paid family and medical leave, one of the only countries without that. And then affordable care for children, for seniors and for people with disabilities. That is a huge policy agenda. People have fought so hard for those policies for so many years. And if Joe Biden and the Democrats could get some of that passed, even even most of that passed in the reconciliation bill, it would be transformative. People should be excited about that. They should fight for it. And I think this is why it's easy to just sort of have your eyes glaze over when you hear negotiations, infrastructure, reconciliation, all this bullshit. But these are the very real policies that would transform people's lives that we're talking about here. And they are absolutely worth fighting for and worth paying attention to as this process goes on.
1: Would you call it a BIF deal? I almost... (laughs)
2: I almost. I asked stole for that. I saw that
1: joke from a hundred people. Just for the record. I I'm almost
2: forgetting. asked for a clip of um of Biff Tannen from Back to the Future to to play right now, but I don't know if it would be dating ourselves.
1: Too yeah, much you might as time. well just just like play some, like some meme that just shows how old we are. <laughs> <laughs> aren't we? Aren't we just to be? I mean, not to delve on this, but aren't we actually past the future? Like, aren't we? Like, yeah, we're,
2: we're definitely we're past the future. I think yeah. it was um I think it was twenty twenty. Oh. I don't know. I can't remember now. I, can't, I haven't seen the movie in a while. Anyway, the challenge for Democrats now is which policies to prioritize uh, if Manchin and other moderates limit the bill to $2 trillion. You mentioned this, but Bernie Sanders' idea is a $6 trillion bill in addition to the policies that I mentioned. He's got lowering the Medicare age to uh, to, to sixty. He's got uh, including dental and other benefits as part of Medicare. He's got some other health care healthcare priorities. He's got immigration in his so that not only do we protect the dreamers, but also offer a path to citizenship. So Bernie's got a lot in his. Manchin has basically said, I don't think I can go over $2 trillion, though he hasn't drawn a line in the sand. But if you have to limit it to $2 trillion, which sounds weird because $2 trillion is still a lot of fucking money, um, then you're going to have to figure out which policies of the ones that I mentioned and that Bernie has that we're going to actually put in the final bill. We thought it would be helpful to know what voters care about, so we asked our friends at Data for Progress, who polled about a 1,000 voters last week. The most popular policies turned out to be health care, corporate tax hikes, clean energy investments, and the child tax credit in that order. Um Anything about that polling surprise you? And what do you think Democrats should prioritize in this bill?
1: It, it's so funny to even. It's like such a, a departure from the conversation about what gets mansion cinema. Some Republicans keep Shelley Moore Capito happy. Whatever you know, whatever like inside the beltway legislative bullshit we're talking about to be like, let's just ask voters what they want and then see if we should do that. And it's like
2: wild, wild.
1: (laughs) And so all of those, all of those people who
2: sent us here, what would you like us to do? (laughs)
1: Yes. And it's just worth noting how these are incredibly popular policies and not just popular with Democrats or independents, but broadly popular with everyone. And so the way, I think there's a way to look at this and say, you have to do A, B, and C because they're the most popular. But we are operating off of I think how much of my life I viewed. Or I think maybe we currently view the Outback menu, which is no wrong choices. Right now, <laughs> you now you got me paying I know, attention. I, I was going to do Taco Bell, but it's like that's the other job. I'm an, Opa, so, I'm an yeah. Outback
2: guy. I'm it's like there for are the no wrong fries. I'm, I want a bloomin' onion soon. I gotta go to the Outback soon.
1: I, I mean, go. thank you, Joe Biden. Now you can. I'm,
2: now that I'm double vaxxed. Also, Emily and Charlie are still on vacation because Emily would not go with me to the Outback, I'm sure. Maybe I'll just go to the Outback alone one of these days.
1: You should, you abs- <laughs> probably as the parent of a toddler, be one of the great luxuries of your life is my guess.
2: It will. <laughs> yes. I know.
1: And also anyway, really hard saying, need- Yes, g- anyway.
2: Yes. <laughs> I got distracted, get excited about the Outback. <laughs> yes. Okay, go ahead.
1: The takeaway from this poll is that Democrats have a broad permission structure from the public to go big and bold here. I think from, yes. a, from a substantive and political perspective, not including a – paying for this with a corporate tax hike would be insane. It is something that we have to do. We should do. All of the bulk of the polling, a lot of the debt for progress polling we've done, the Navigator Polling, some other polling is like it makes things become more popular when you say that corporations are paying for them with higher tax rates. Like that is yeah. – we should do it. We should make Republicans vote against it and we should run on it. But you know, I think there's a – it's like, well, this is 80 percent popular and this is 68 percent popular. They're all really fucking popular, so you should go do them and not worry about it. Because what is interesting is there's such worry about backlash where we're going to do these big things and then it's going to cause this backlash among people on the right. This polling suggests that there is not a backlash problem with these policies. There are going to be some voters who are going to be pissed no matter what Joe Biden and the Democrats do. But that's going to happen whether they pass – Something small, something big, something two trillion, something five trillion. We are in the point where you're better off doing the big, popular things than worrying about the reaction from the right, who are going to react no matter what you do.
2: I will say that the way this becomes unpopular with people is, and and the the new the media coverage uh, does this. It just reports on the number, the size of the number, the size of the bill, right? If you just hear that Democrats are ramming through this, is, I mean, we're going to see these headlines everywhere and these leads everywhere, so we just have to prepare for it. Democrats are ramming through a multi-trillion dollar reconciliation bill uh, that's partisan, that doesn't have any Republicans, right? And if all people here who don't pay close attention to the news or to politics is that Democrats are just spending trillions of dollars and they don't actually know what the policies are, And they don't know how it's going to improve their lives. Yeah, then I think there is a potential for backlash, not just among the right, but among sort of the the broad spectrum of voters. And so I do think it's incumbent on the White House, which I know they're going to try their hardest. And all of us, by the way, to talk about the policies in this bill and to sell the policies in this bill. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this today is I feel like we have even been guilty of just sort of glossing over what could possibly be in this bill. And I think it's not as popular if you just treat it as some behemoth, you know, trillion dollar package that's moving through Congress really slowly, but start talking about all the policies that could actually change people's lives. Policies that we have advocated for and fought for for years and years and years in many, many campaigns.
1: You mean because we sometimes become punchable? Saves America? <laughs> <laughs> <It's>
2: like, <laughs> it's a real test now if Jake Sherman listens to this podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, can, I say, can I say one more thing
1: about this that I think is yeah, important? sure. Is... All these policies are popular, and we should sell the policies, but I think in terms of political messaging, policies are a means, not an end. They are data points that prove a political narrative, that buttress a political narrative. And so when you get into, well, we gave you healthcare, we gave you a higher minimum wage, we did this, now vote for us, you're sort of devolving into sort of – that does not work. There's all kinds of evidence that does not work. It, this is why I think the – Corporate tax hike is so important from a political perspective is it is inevitable about who you are and who you fight for. And if it's just about we gave you these policies and you like these policies, we know that does not work. Just look at the minimum wage in Florida where the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage initiative got 60% and Trump won the state pretty easily. And so that I think it was like a 13 14% gap between people who voted for $15 minimum wage and people who voted for the candidate that supports $15 minimum wage. And so it has to become a narrative about the parties and what they're going to deliver and why Democrats have to hold the majority not just we gave you good shit now give us your vote.
2: Yeah, like you know Democrats should be able to say that we inherited uh, a country where rich people and big corporations were getting to uh, get off without paying many taxes and uh, pollute the planet however they wanted. And what we decided is that we were going to fight for the middle class, deliver and actually save the planet for future generations. Right. Like that's just an example of the larger story you can tell with sort of all these policies. Uh, that we're going to sort of reduce economic inequality, that we're going to save the planet for our children, that we're going to make sure that children aren't in poverty. Like, I think you need to talk about them in value-based statements, as our guest host, Anat, from last no. week would would surely agree, would surely agree. All right. There's also a political question here about which voters Democrats are trying to persuade by passing these policies and whether it's even possible to persuade voters by passing policies, which you just touched on. Uh, Pew Research released their 2020 election analysis last week, which is one of the more trusted and respected analysis because they identify people based on their actual voting record. So it's not just polls. Um, but Pew basically tells the same story as every other post-election analysis. It is one of those years where the four or five or six different post-election analysis have all converged together on sort of the same story. And that story is this. Joe Biden ran better than Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, largely because... He improved his performance among married men, veteran households, suburbanites, independents, and Democrats who considered themselves moderate or conservative. Of course, Joe Biden wouldn't have won without incredibly strong turnout among young voters and voters of color. But Biden didn't do any better with these voters than Hillary did. And in most cases, he did worse, especially among Latinos. Instead, it was Biden's improvement among more moderate and conservative voters that marked the biggest difference between the 2016 election and the 2020 election. Um, did anything else jump out at you from this analysis? And what does it tell you about uh, 2022 and
1: beyond? I want to be very careful about drawing too many conclusions for this as it relates to 2022. There is very little evidence in recent years about the durability and transferability of presidential coalitions. The Obama coalition did not turn out in 2010, 2014, 2016 when Obama was not on the ballot. The Trump coalition did not turn out in 2018. And this Biden coalition, as we f- have found in these analyses, seems particularly unlikely to vote in the, whether turnout, not just turnout, but vote choice in the same way without Joe Biden on the ballot and without Trump on the ballot. Right, Mm. so a a coalition that depends on more moderate conservative voters is going to, by definition, struggle to keep unified control of government in the hands of Democrats.
2: And you're saying that because in midterm elections you tend to get more committed voters turning out on both sides, Republican, and Democrat. And so the voters in the middle, whether they're independents, moderate Democrats, liberal Republicans, people who tend to come in and out of the electorate from cycle to cycle, you don't see those people as often in midterm elections as you do in a presidential election.
1: It's, bo- it's both things, right? So it is. So it's there's a turnout question about you know, how many, what drop off do you have? What's the delta between your presidential year turnout and your midterm turnout? And there are Mm -hmm. reasons to believe that has traditionally been a huge problem for Democrats. There are reasons to believe based on this, it may actually be a bigger problem for Republicans as the Democratic coalition has shifted uh, in the Trump era to include more suburban voters. which sort of helped us in 2018. There are reasons to believe a lot of those people will turn out. Where I worry is if your margin of victory depends on moderate and conservative voters who did not like Donald Trump, they are the sort of voters who tend to, in previous elections, shift back to default to divided government, right? You know, it's important to remember that we don't know exactly how this played out, but in polling heading into the election, there were suggestions that Joe Biden was only going to get a quarter to a third of Trump voters who voted for a Democrat in the 2018 elections. Right. Right. So you can see a world, and we, I mean, we've talked about this before, but there was an Axios focus group a few months ago, which talked to a bunch of Trump Biden voters from Trump in 16 to Biden in 20, who, were very, very open to, many of them were very open to and potentially likely to vote for a Republican in the congressional elections. And so like you're- Which is a
2: big warning sign, right? They voted for, they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. They voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And now they're like, yeah, maybe I'll go back and vote for a Republican. Yeah.
1: And a Democrat in in 18, right? So they went Republican, Democrat, Democrat. And so, but if you want to, you know, to step out of character for a minute, look at the glass half full nature of this, both in the short term and the long term. The short term is... There I was
2: going to do that. I'm oh, not no. stepping out of any character right there. I was um, about do, to give well, you the well, me, let me fall. Let me
1: clear out and let you just let the optimism <laughs> flow. Go.
2: No, I was going to say, because while we have concerns in our coalition that some of the moderate to conservative voters that turned out for Biden might either return to the Republican fold or stay home in 2022, on the other side... There's a bunch of people who came out to vote for Trump in 2020 who did not show up in 2018 to the polls at all. A lot of like rabid Trump supporters who just stayed home in 2018 and without Trump on the ballot in 2022, they may stay home as well.
1: That's right. And I think there's a long term issue or long term. There's a finding in this study that is so optimistic for Democrats in the long term, which is the silent generation. And boomers are shrinking as a percentage of the electorate with every passing year. And millennials and Gen Z are growing. And Biden won millennials and Gen Z by 20 points. And so, just from a pure mathematical perspective, now you have to hold on to those numbers. But the the Trump coalition, the Republican coalition is just simply becoming a smaller part of the electorate every year. Um, now, that doesn't play itself out exactly the same way in the Electoral College and the Senate map. But in general, the trends in America are deeply dangerous for Republicans if we, could, we as a planet and a democracy can just survive long enough to reap the benefits of that.
2: Big if, big if. Um, does this change anything for you in terms of what kind of reconciliation bill Democrats should be fighting for which leads to sort of a bigger question for you. Like, how much do you think that any of the legislation Democrats pass or have passed or might pass will matter to voters?
1: I don't I don't think it it has any specific impact on what I think Democrats should pass in the reconciliation package. What it does suggest to me is that this finding is consistent with the model of the electorate that the Biden presidential campaign had going into the election. And it explains the focus on unity, the focus on bipartisanship, on where yep. where their gains were coming from. And it wasn't from, you know, a massive increase in base turnout. Um, it was going to be in persuasion. And they ran a campaign that was based on persuasion. And it delivered. And so I think that – I don't – like when I look at the reconciliation, I'm not – like the things in there like are all super popular. though. If I am picking one thing that you absolutely have to make the central focus of the reconciliation package, once again, more money in the jargon jar, but is raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. Where, you know, where if you want to find like there's a disturbing finding the Pew study, which is even though Biden did, I think, three points better with non-college white voters than Hillary Clinton did, which kind of was that that was the how he won. Yeah given the the makeups of Wisconsin.
2: I was going to say specifically those upper Midwest states. That's how he won Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, because a bunch of non-college white voters, not a bunch, but enough, just a small amount, went from voting against Hillary to voting for Joe Biden.
1: But where Trump actually gained massively on 2016 was in rural areas. And 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 so if you look at – it's a huge gain from 16 to 20, but when you look from 12 to 20, it's a gigantic gain. And one of the things that I think is critical to Democrats is we have to become the people who are fighting powerful special interests on the behalf of middle and working class people. And one of the ways which you do that is you become the people who want to raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy to pay for things that actually help people's lives while Republicans are willing to sink a infrastructure bill. They're willing to uh, you know oppose all of these things because – not because they think they're bad ideas or anything like that, because they do not want to ask Amazon, Facebook, ExxonMobil, whoever else to pay a single penny more in taxes to improve your life. That, like, it's. I also think the it's less about the policies that we are passing from a political perspective and more about framing the Republican opposition to those policies on terms that are most favorable with the broadest swath of the electorate, which includes – those moderate server voters, Democratic base voters, and potentially keeping some of these Trump, uh, you know, so the Trump surge voters home in the midterms because that's not what they signed up for when they would be put on the MAGA hat in twenty sixteen.
2: Another way to frame that is we are trying to create a multiracial, working class, middle class coalition of voters. That is the most powerful coalition of voters for us, and so it's not about how do I just reach out to the moderate voters and the centrists and and some of the white people that go back and forth? Or how do I keep the base of young people and women and Latinos and Black Americans and Asian Americans? It is how do I, if, if I'm asking corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair, so that, their fair share so we can invest in the working class and middle class and lift people out of poverty, that is an attempt to try to stitch together a multiracial uh, working class coalition that is going to be very powerful electorally for the Democratic Party in just about every swing state that we need to win it.
1: The best political messaging tells a story that has antagonists and protagonists, right? Like, who who is what is the force yep. that is stopping you from achieving the financial security you want or the dreams you want or that is making your life harder? Republicans tell a very consistent story about it being an array of non-white people, immigrants, Poor people, uh, Hollywood elites—all this whole—they have a story about it that are that are they are standing in the way of your life. The true story, the more uh, believable story, and I believe the much more powerful political story is the one about growing economic inequality and the rising power corporation in a world in which you, a teacher, a construction worker, a firefighter, an accountant, pays a higher tax rate than a billionaire. Or Amazon, that there are corporations running around this country who pay nothing. That Peter Thiel is putting billions of dollars in an IRA. That Jeff Bezos is taking a child tax credit because of very complicated, um, ta- <clears throat> very complicated tax accounting. Like some that story that was in, that ProPublica story from a few months ago should be something that should be the fodder for. A gazillion ads, yep. a gazillion stump speeches. There was a New York Times story about how hedge funds have been uh, jerking around the tax code for years. All of that, like things are unfair. Here is why they're unfair. Who's benefiting from them and who the fuck is protecting them? It's the Republicans.
2: Which, and by the way, there was a story this week that all these conservative groups are rallying around the provision in the bipartisan infrastructure framework that we're going to beef up the IRA so the IRA can go after wealthy tax cheats. And they're trying to get McConnell and the Republicans to say, I'm going to sink this deal if the IRS is beefed up to go after wealthy tax cheats. And I'm like, you know what? Fucking be our guest. Sink the bill because you wanted to make sure that your rich friends got away with cheating the tax system. Great. We'll take that to the ballot box.
1: One pickup for Fine. you. I think you want to say sink the biff.
2: you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule I is hope. to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You, know, you, know, you Have know you what been able to
1: squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John?
2: Yeah, that's I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Mm-hmm. More time for you. I, uh... You know, because we've been doing, what, a weekday mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast mm. It was a huge mistake So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well,
1: now I brought therapy back I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time Because uh, it turns out talking. that's about- going
2: to make the jokes better <laughs> Let's talk about the Republican midterm strategy where who else but Donald Trump will be playing a starring role. Uh, You might be wondering whether the former president has been laying low since his family business was indicted on 15 felony counts, including tax fraud and grand larceny. Of course not. Uh, (laughs) At a rally in Florida over the weekend where he attacked the New York prosecutors as fascist and authoritarian. You're the puppet. Uh, He also (laughs) demanded to know why so many people are still in jail for attacking the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And he tried to turn the crowd against the Capitol police officer who shot insurrectionist Ashley Babbitt as she attempted to force her way into the room where members of Congress were hiding from the mob, saying, quote, if it were on the other side, the person who did the shooting would be strung up and hung. Very pro-police, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, Now, you might be wondering, why do we still care what kind of crazy shit Donald Trump says? Well, because if you're a Republican who wants to run for office in 2022 and you don't support Trump, Trumpism, and the big lie about the 2020 election, you will find yourself with the primary challenger who does. More than 700 Republican candidates for 2022 have now pushed Trump's election fraud conspiracies, including people running for the House, the Senate, governor, state legislature, secretary of state, and other offices that have the power to overturn elections. Dan, there's two ways to look at this one. Uh, one, these are candidates who don't really believe the big lie, but are embracing it to win a primary. And two, these are candidates who, if they win, plan to avenge Trump by overturning the next election. Uh, what do you think?
1: Can I offer you a third way of looking at it? Both? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. The, False there choice? Are, <laughs> there are people in Congress or in the States or wherever else who, and running in these campaigns who definitely believe the big lie. Their brains have been pickled by Fox News. They take Tucker Carlson as the gospel. And then there are people who do not believe it at all. Like take Josh Hawley, for instance. Josh Hawley does not for one fucking second believe one word of the idea that the election was stolen. And what's the difference between Josh Hawley and some other person who believes it? Zero. It all ends up being the same, whether it's a person who believes it, a person who doesn't believe it, they are the same people who are passing the voter suppression laws based on it, the same ones who are voted to overturn the election. If you believe half the Repu- – almost all of the Republican caucus in the House truly believes election was stolen, that is incorrect. A disturbing number of them do, but Kevin McCarthy doesn't. And I think the press should stop distinguishing between those two. That is the thing we hear all the- – all the coverage of the Liz Cheney thing was no one really believes it. They just don't want her to talk about it anymore. It doesn't fucking matter. If you – if you are unwilling to stand up and say something about it, you end up just being a vehicle for putting in place the the consequences of the big lie, right? the The laws that come from it, the like, like if this ele- if there is a stolen election, an overturned election, or an attempt at that in twenty twenty four, it's going to be done from a coalition of the believing and the unbelieving, right? And it's just so it doesn't really matter. The danger is, is it's become table stakes for being a a Republican politician to promulgate that lie.
2: I think there's another danger here. And uh, Jonathan Chait wrote about this uh, on Wednesday, I believe, about how Trump is now framing and talking about the insurrection. And he writes, the anti-anti-Trump right has dismissed the insurrection as overblown, a protest march gone bad, perhaps ill-considered, but never posing any serious threat to the Republic. right? You hear Republicans do this all the time. The far right's highlighting of Babbitt's death sends a different message. The insurrection was good. Babbitt's effort to penetrate the defensive barrier was brave, and the stopping of her charge a crime. And I do think that is very scary and very frightening, very dangerous, because and it's and it's right in line with Trump saying, Why are these people still being held? The insurrectionists, right? He's talking about them in other right wing media sources and everyone. They're talking about them now as political prisoners that need to be released, the people who stormed the fucking Capitol. And Trump saying that the police officer who shot someone who was trying to attack members of Congress, that 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 person, if they were on the other side, they'd be strung up and hung. I mean, that is a pretty, pretty dangerous way to head into the next election, saying that the people who that the people who uh, tried to attack the U.S. Capitol and attack members of Congress who wanted to hang Mike Pence need to somehow be avenged and let free because they're just political prisoners. It's it's bad shit. Bad shit. And I don't know, like, I guess I have a question for you on this, which is, how do Democrats talk about this? Because we just laid out this entire message, right, where Democrats are focused on economic inequality, because that's the message that we know that polls really well. And they talk about rich people not paying taxes and investing in the middle class and all this kind of stuff. And then, again, in an alternate reality here, where Donald Trump's running around the country saying, uh, by the way, the insurrectionists were good. Like, how do we deal with that? How do we talk about that?
1: Seems hard. (laughs) I mean, I mean, not and I talked about this a lot last week, but I think there's two principles here. Which one is we have to frame the countermajoritarian, authoritarian leanings of the Republican Party as something born of weakness, not strength. That they have to do this because their agenda is so unpopular; they can't win an election the normal way. The only way that they can hold on to political powers to stop you, try to stop you from voting. They're going to fail at that, as 2020 proved, but that's what they want to do. And then you have to explain why they're doing it. And why they're doing it is directly connected to who benefits. All of this is about the fact that the corporate plutocratic special interest agenda of the Republicans cannot – is not is opposed by the vast majority of Americans as our polling interest is opposed by huge bipartisan majorities. The only way it can be put in place – is by limiting the power of the majority, by trying to steal elections, to divide us on racial lines. This it gets us right back to the core tenets of the race class narrative. We, it, we have to say who benefits because people will naturally believe that politicians will do things to benefit themselves and they will not really penalize them for it. It's sort of like, yeah, they're a politician. Of course, that's what they're going to do. But it so if it's just like they're doing this to stay in power is, in my mind, not a compelling enough argument to move People in the direction we need to move. It has to be about who benefits from that. Why are these people dividing you? Why are these people trying to steal elections? Why are they engaging in this dangerous rhetoric? What are the consequences of that? And how does that affect your life? Right.
2: Yeah. I do think how does it affect your life is, is very important because I do think we talk about this, people write about this as sort of attacks on democracy and our institutions. And we talk about authoritarianism. And I think that's fine for like everyone to be debating on Twitter and us talking about it. but. It's pretty esoteric, right, to the average voter. And I think you have to make it about their lives. Like, these are radical extremists who want to take away your voice, right? They want to take away your voice. They don't think that you should have a say in how your country is run. They think they're going to make it harder for you to vote. And then when you do vote, they might throw your vote away. They might overturn it if they don't like the outcome. And so you don't get a say in how your country is run, how your community is run. You don't get that because you don't agree with them. Like, I, I kind of think that has to be part of the message. And I don't, I don't know that it's always easy to connect it to, like, powerful corporate interests when it's a bunch of people storming a capital. Like, it's, sometimes it's a hard connection to make. But I do think you've got to always bring the argument back to people's lives and what it's going to mean for you. They're going to try to take away your health care. They're going to try to take away your child care. They're going to try to take away your voice, your vote. Um, let's look at two high-profile examples of Trumpy Senate candidates. In Georgia, Trump took it upon himself to announce on a right-wing radio show that Herschel Walker plans on joining the crowded Republican field to take on Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock in 2022. Walker is, of course, a Heisman Trophy-winning running back for the University of Georgia, who briefly played for Trump's professional football team, the New Jersey Generals, and then campaigned for him in 2016 and 2020. Dan, what do you think about Herschel Walker as a Senate candidate?
1: (laughs) On paper, great candidate.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Beloved in Georgia. Yeah, he's a legend.
1: He's a a legend in Georgia. He's... A black candidate in Georgia where if you can just alter, you know, just a few points um, get a few additional black voters, that would – Raphael Warnock would lose, right? The, I mean, can't forget how close that election was in the runoff in 20 – I guess it was 2021 when it actually happened. Um, incredibly close and benefited from depressed Republican turnout – because Donald Trump was telling everyone that Republicans were stealing the election from him. Um, so yeah, it's on paper worrisome. Now the history of very famous celebrity novice politicians is pretty mixed, right? In most cases, they flame out. Now there's one big giant example counterexample that we should ignore, which is Donald Trump himself. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, and I there's a I lot know about that one. How he will actually respond, to, you know, from a level of press scrutiny he's never had before, maybe able to answer questions like that. It's a really open uh, question. But you look at that and you're like, yeah, that's you'd much ra- you would much rather run against David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler, some other fucking nameless, faceless uh, MAGA Republican than a University of Georgia football legend.
2: Now, a few things about Herschel Walker, we should. Um- we should talk about and that I'm guessing that the electorate will be informed about um, over the next several months and year. Um, a lot of people are writing about him now. Uh, Tim Miller at the Bulwark, friend of ours, wrote uh, a piece on uh, on Herschel Walker a couple months ago. So, you know, he lives in Texas now. He'd have to move back to Georgia. Um, he has talked openly for many years about uh, the fact that he has multiple personality disorder. Um, obviously, don't want to stigmatize mental health issues, but Part of this issue for him was at one point, and he has told this story, uh, he pulled a gun on his wife, threatened to kill her, her friend, and his therapist during a therapy session. Uh, he told ESPN that he used to play Russian roulette with a loaded gun in front of house guests and urge them to play Russian roulette as well before they um, competed against him in feats of strength. They would play <laughs> Russian roulette first with loaded guns. Uh, and then after the election in 2020, he, of course, spread conspiracies about voting fraud, Dominion fraud and said that Trump needs to stay in power to punish the people who have done bad things on the election. And he cheered on the insurrectionists. That is the kind of candidate that they want to run in Georgia, and by the way, all over the country. So I I do think everything on paper, and especially for voters who are less engaged in the political process, they hear Herschel Walker, you live in Georgia, legend. That's easy, right? And that's going to get him a, a long way. But I do think it's going to be the Democrats job to sort of educate people about all that other shit <laughs> as the next year continues. And we'll see how he actually holds up as a candidate.
1: Yeah, it's it's a high floor, low ceiling candidate. Like it could he could be a great candidate or it could be an absolute fucking disaster. Right. And we and we do not. Yeah, we do not know.
2: Another competitive Republican Senate primary is in Ohio, where hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance announced his long anticipated candidacy to fill the seat being vacated by Rob Portman. Vance is a former Marine and Silicon Valley venture capitalist who's running with the help of a $10 million super PAC funded by his friend, Peter Thiel. But in his announcement speech, he tried to sell himself to Ohio voters as a Trumpy populist saying the elites plunder this country and then blame us for it in the process. Only problem, CNN's Andrew Kaczynski unearthed some of Vance's deleted tweets from 2016 where he called Trump reprehensible and said he was voting for independent candidate Evan McMullen vance has since apologized take a listen like a lot of uh people i I criticized trump back in 2016 and i asked folks not to judge me by based on what i I said in 2016 because i've been very open about the fact that i I did say those critical things and uh i regret them and i regret being wrong about the guy i think that he was a good president i think he made a lot of good decisions for people and i think he took a lot of flack pathetic what do you think of jd vance's chances can he win this primary as a, a a trumper come
1: lately he could win the primary. I mean, a ten million dollars in ads from Peter Thiel, a Facebook billionaire, could help. In some of the stories I've read about this, internal polling seems to suggest he's currently running in third to Josh Mandel mm-hmm. and Jane Timken. Now they have go into this race with much higher name ID. Josh Mandel has run for Senate before. He's a famously miserable candidate. Fucking
2: world world class goober, Josh Mandel. Yeah. just a. Just a fucking bananas that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Take a look. Just scroll through Twitter. Put in his name. We don't have to. Just have a good time.
1: James Timken, I think, also very Trumpy candidate. It's there is no non-Trumpy candidate.
2: She ran the Ohio Republican Party during the Trump era, and uh, many people think that Trump will ultimately endorse her. Just so people know.
1: And if Trump, whoever Trump endorses, will most likely and perhaps almost certainly be the nominee. But I think the focus on JD Vance is both a gigantic indictment of the DC media, which is obsessed mm-hmm. with JD Vance because they woke up on election day twenty sixteen and was like, oh my God, we have to learn everything we possibly can about the middle of America. Where's a book? And they all read his book. Right. And it became <laughs> just like it became like, like people were walking around watching. Who Washington. are
2: these? Yeah. The, Although they all suddenly turned into fucking anthropologists. Like yes. let's go out and let's find the diner. And yeah, let's go, uh, let's, let's go to study. the white working
1: class. You know, Jason Kander said this, uh, I th- said people who treated, uh, middle America as a zoo exhibit, right? <laughs> where It's yeah. like, let's see what's happening there. And then they all like talked about it. They were like, salon book clubs about Hillbilly elegy and he would like come down from his private equity or venture capital office to speak of them. But I think the the reason to focus on JD Vance is just because it is the pitch perfect fucking example of modern republicanism in the Trump era. He yeah. is on this is who he is, is to one way to summarize your intro with him. He is a Yale educated. Venture capital executive, Evan McMullen voter, whose biggest supporter is a Facebook billionaire, running as a populist heir to Trumpism. And it's such a giant. <laughs> That's very fucking, good. Very he, good. He knows it's a giant fraud. Everyone knows it's a fraud. And Trump is himself a shameless fucking fraud. And so it's just like if you the person who can most shamelessly embrace their most fraudulent beliefs and instincts It becomes the heir to Trumpism. And so it is – he probably won't win this primary. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. But it is a – it's just like as a perfect way to understand this era, it is to understand J.D. Vance and how he got here and what he's saying and who he really is. And that he does not give two shits about how little he believes the things he's saying.
2: And, you know, his rivals are on to this, the Club for Growth pack, which supports uh, Mandel – issued a statement on Vance when he entered the race. He says he's from Middletown, but he made a boatload dissing his former neighbors to sell his book. He claims to be a Trump Republican, but in the short time Mr. Vance has been active in politics, he spent the bulk of it tearing down President Trump and mocking Trump voters. Uh, Other people have noted that Middletown is not actually in Appalachia, uh, even though that's who he claims to uh, both represent and understand. So yeah, I mean, I think that Look, when you have a choice even between uh, someone who seems extremist and someone who seems like a fraud, you probably go. A lot of voters go with the extremist, sadly, (laughs) like like a fraud is maybe the worst thing to be. And I do think that if the Mandel campaign or the Timken campaign are at all competent, which is a big if they can just fucking tear J.D. Vance to pieces (laughs) as this carpet bagging Silicon Valley guy who's just coming in and telling them like being a sociologist about voters like they should be able to make quick work of him. Uh, the other primary campaigns. I do think if he somehow got through the primary, he may be a more formidable candidate than the other two Republicans. But I think it's going to be hard for him to get through that primary.
1: It's just also so perfect that when it was revealed, revealed that he opposed Trump, that he had his first, the, like the the first thing he had to do, his crisis communications move was to apologize to Fox News. Right. <laughs> Not the people of Ohio, not the Trump. He had to go on Fox News. And and then even better is just like in a world in which things that should be disqualifying perhaps or not is he did an interview uh, with Molly Ball of Time magazine. Yeah. Where he called himself a flip-flop flipper, which is 100 million times worse than John Kerry saying he voted for something before he voted against it. You Like he's a – I mean it's just – it's unbelievable. Oh, that went, well, there was that. And then he
2: also said to her – he, she, she asked him about the insurrection and the attack on the Capitol. And he said, well, there were some bad apples on January 6th, very clearly. But most of the people there were actually super peaceful. Like, J.D. Vance once called Donald Trump reprehensible. And now that he's running the Republican primary after the attack on the Capitol, he's back to, like, Donald Trump's view of Charlottesville. <laughs> you know, there actually people were actually super peaceful there. Like, he knows that's fucking bullshit. But you're right. That is the exact story of Republicans in this era right now and and back to the original question in this section like do these people believe in the big lie or don't they it really doesn't matter right because J.D. Vance clearly doesn't believe in the big lie, clearly doesn't think that most of the people were super peaceful, but he's sitting there having to apologize to Fox News and Donald Trump and Trump voters, and he's going to do whatever he can to appeal to them. And that's what every Republican is going to do, whether they are committed to Trumpism or just feel like they need to be committed to Trumpism. It doesn't make a difference. This is the party now. He's still in charge, and, you know, all the dangers are still there. So watch out. Watch (laughs) out. Uh, When we come back, we will have Dan's interview with Adam Surer about his new book, The Cruelty is the Point.
1: Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria.
0: Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod
1: that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined by Adam Sower, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point, a new essay collection on Trump and Trumpism in America. Adam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I just want to congratulate you on the book. It is uh, just an incredibly important piece of reading for understanding and contextualizing the moment we are in and the four years we just went through. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I want to start with asking how it is you came to settle on cruelty as the defining theme of Trumpism and Trump over the last four years. Yeah, so uh, the title of the
0: book, which comes from a column I wrote in 2018, um, was basically, it was inspired by, I was watching, this was during the Kavanaugh hearings, and I was watching um, a rally that the president was holding, the then president was holding um, in defense of Brett Kavanaugh, who had been accused by Christine Blasey Ford of sexually assaulting her when she was a teenager. And in her testimony, uh, one of the most um, notable parts of the testimony was when she said, uh, "Indelible uh, in the hippocampus was a laughter," basically referring to what she said uh, was Kavanaugh, and a childhood friend, laughing during the assault. And the president, uh, you know, heard that and he zeroed in on that as a weakness. Um, and he, uh, during that rally, he held her up for ridicule. Um, he mocked her. He he made his audience laugh at her. Um, And it seemed to me that that was so precise and attentive. Um, And also everyone there was enjoying it. Um, They were having a good time. Um, And it wasn't just that it was that it was a kind there was a kind of intimacy that was created when the president um, was mocking this woman who had claimed to be a victim of sexual assault. Uh, in a way that there was almost no regard for the possibility, even if you thought she in particular was lying, no regard for the for how this might affect other women or other people who might want to come forward and might fear being laughed at if they uh, had, um, you know, if if they told the truth about their experience. And so, uh, it just seemed very clear to me that part of this uh, act of community creation uh, that Trump was engaged in was cruelty. Um, and it's something that's part of human nature. You know, all human beings are capable of cruelty. But uh, this was sort of like, you know, when you're a kid and you're, you know, you see a bunch of the cool kids making fun of a nerdy kid. Um, maybe you stay silent. Maybe you join in because you want to be a cool kid as well. Uh, you know, maybe in rare circumstances, you're one of those people who would stand up for a kid who's getting picked on. Um, but the point is, is that there's a an act of community creation by the mocking of this other child, uh, by the kids who are on the, in the in crowd. Um, and this is just something that had been elevated to a political level uh, by Trump. And um, you know, the, the column I wrote was just, I think the reason it took off was because we all sort of instinctively understood that this was a part of his politics and a crucial part of his politics. Um, but we had struggled to articulate it in a concise way.
1: You know, you also wrote that Trump didn't invent this form of politics, that the, the politics of it usually or it's a of cruelty and exclusion had been around long before Trump. Did he how did he change? Did he change? Is he just a natural extension of something that's been happening for a long time? Is there is there a going back from this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that Trump is a manifestation of a conflict we've been having ever since the founding of the country. After all, we had a country that was founded on the idea that uh, all men are created equal. But that was really, but what was really meant by that was white men with property. Um, and so when you exclude people from, from, from this you know, beautiful principle of human liberty and equality, um, you have to find a reason to justify doing that. And, um, you know, so ever since the founding, we've been trying to, you know, there has been uh, an element of American society that has tried to expand those rights and freedoms to everyone and an element that says we've gone too far or we, we should not extend these rights and freedoms to these people because they don't deserve them for whatever reason. Um, and as it currently exists, our political system incentivizes this kind of politics because, you know, between uh, Senate malapportionment Gerrymandering in the House, or uh, you know, the Electoral College itself. You know, Trump's uh, coalition is ideally geographically distributed to hold power in disproportion to its influence. So it becomes all the more urgent to persuade that coalition that uh, they're on the verge of destruction, that they are being menaced by you know their fellow Americans, and so it anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. And not only that, but you know, these acts of cruelty against people outside of the community that they've created are heroic. They're not merely uh, justified by expedience. They are, in fact, heroic acts of defense against, um, you know, people who uh, are threatening your life or your way of life or the way America should be. And Donald Trump uses this rhetoric constantly. He says, you know, I'm the person standing in between you and this impending liberal apocalypse. And this is how you end up justifying things like disenfranchising rival constituencies, uh, banning people on the base of religion, uh, doing laws that uh, are are targeted at trans children. Um, This is, you know, you justify this by saying these people are threatening us, they're going to destroy us. And so whatever we do to prevent that uh, is acceptable. And he didn't invent this, but I think Donald Trump was particularly good practitioner of this politics and perhaps more frighteningly, he showed the Republican Party much they could get away with and how far they could go without backlash and that's why you're seeing you know because um the structure of american politics has not changed the incentives for republicans to hold on to power by frightening uh their base into thinking they're sort of you know on the verge of annihilation has not changed and as long as the structure stays the same if the democrats are not willing to make changes to the system to make it more fair uh you know this um, you know, this kind of politics is going to continue because they can hold power that way indefinitely.
1: It's one of the things I was struck by in reading your book this weekend. Like I had read, you know, you're one of my favorite writers. I read you throughout the process as you were writing these essays, reading them in real time. And, but so there's like one world where Joe Biden wins, the Republican party walks back from the brink. There's some sort of process to move away from Trumpism. And your book is this, just this very specific, accounting of this one very specific period in American history. But everything you write is just, even though Trump is like, yes, he's going to may run for president again. Yes, he's going to come in for candidates, but he has largely receded from even Fox News isn't covering his rallies live. But all of the points here, you take Trump's name out of it. It's still very applicable to what the Republican Party is doing right now.
0: I think it was a huge, I mean, I think the pivotal point here was when Donald Trump and the Republicans beat their polls in 2020. Because if it had been a kind of Hoover-style wipeout, like 1932 or something, um, I think they would have reconsidered their approach. But because Trumpism succeeded in defiance of expectations, uh, I think the Republican Party felt this was still a rational course of action. And it's going to continue. I mean, Democrats, because of thermostatic public opinion, because of the way midterms usually go, um, you know, it's very likely that Democrats will lose Congress. And if they do, um, all this stuff, I mean, you think about the fact, the 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, All this entire approach to politics, I think, from their perspective, has been vindicated. So they have no reason to stop until they pay an actual political cost for the course that they've chosen. Um, and it's not clear to me how that can happen um, unless Democrats take some pretty drastic actions that thus far they have been unwilling to take.
1: You know, you write in the book how in 2016, so both in the run-up to the election, and the aftermath, so many re- reporters, political pundits, even Democrats were tried so hard to explain Trump's victory in everything other than racial terms, right? Economic anxiety, the system is rigged. So two questions that, you know, I was particularly struck by how you talked about the misinterpretation of the system is rigged, how Media elites interpreted it, and how you think Trump's supporters interpreted it. So, if you could help explain that, but then also, have we gotten we the political media complex, people who talk and write about politics for a living, gotten better at calling this out for what it is? Or as we head it, as we deal with the big lie in the twenty twenty election, truthing, are we just making the same set of mistakes all over again?
0: I'll say that, you know, I think part of the, uh, you know, I'm an opinion writer, I I, I write my opinion, Um, but I think that my job is actually not that different from a regular uh, mainstream objective reporter in the sense that my job is to describe what's happening accurately. Um, And there are limitations to uh, the tradition of objective reporting in the United States um, that opinion writers are free from. Um, That's not to say you should only read opinion writers or that uh, objective uh, news reporters are not good at their jobs. That's not what I'm saying. Um, But I am saying that it's difficult to write, you know, if if it was easy simply to describe things as they are, we wouldn't need journalists at all. We wouldn't need a media. Um, So I think, you know, on the one hand, it is a challenging thing to do, especially when you have something, a phenomenon like Trump that seems to go against The prevailing trend of the past few years. Um, So the big question in 2016 is like, how does a country that elected Barack Obama president also elect Donald Trump president? Um, And I think that, you know, obviously there are economic factors here. You know, the uh, recovery from the great recession was halting and slow and painful. And a lot of people experienced a great deal of misery as a result. A lot of the people who experienced that misery voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, you know, in particular, um, you know, it, the, the housing crisis disproportionately affected um, uh, homeowners of color. It not, it's not that it didn't affect white people, but it affected, I mean, it affected the whole country. Um, so the question is, how is that experience mediated by ideology? Um, and I think that's how you get from, you know, the economic conditions that were genuinely bad. And I think the Obama administration's response uh, was genuinely inadequate in many ways, despite other things that they did um, that I supported. Um, And so, you know, it's how you interpret those conditions that leads you to a conclusion about whether or not Donald Trump's proposed solutions are appropriate or adequate or justified or effective. Um, And I think people understandably wanted to stop and give like a really simplistic economic explanation for it because it uh, staved off the more disturbing interpretations of what it meant for a man who rose to prominence in 2011, rocketed to the top of the Republican field by stating, you know, that the first black president was not born in the United States. Um, I think, I think from that point, Uh, And, you know, one of the things that Trump did was that he, despite the fact that there was a tremendous economic incentive to say, you know, if you don't want to alienate, um, you know, your viewers, your readers, your listeners, um, your audience by saying, you know, racism played a huge role in Trump's election. Um, you know, there's millions and millions of people who voted for this man who you want to buy your products or to vote for you, um or to listen to your show or to read your book or read your newspaper. Um, And that, you know, and, and for a long time, people really resisted. uh, For a long time, people really resisted accepting that race had played such an important role in Trump's election. And I think what changed that was the fact that Trump kept telling us over and over and over again what he was about why he was doing what he was doing, and what he believed, to the point where it became undeniable except to the people who still wanted to support Trump um, despite these things and told themselves that he wasn't saying or doing the things that he was saying or doing. Um, I think, in fact, that a lot of what I write, there's not that much disagreement between me and Trump about the nature of who he is and what he does and what he believes. I think there is a, a lot of disagreement between me and the sort of um, the layer of people who want to continue supporting Trump with a clean conscience, who want to tell themselves uh, that he does not believe and do these things, or he did not do them, um, or that, you know, he does not revel in cruelty towards people that he considers beneath him. Uh, but I actually don't think that there's much uh, that, me and him are in much disagreement about that or the nature of that.
1: When you talk about the impact that Obama's election had on the role of race in American politics, you talk about how Obama... Sort of ra- everything became racialized post Obama. Whether it's economic policy, healthcare policy, you know, you, you mentioned the selection of, uh, you know, the choice of of dog became a racial. Portuguese thing. Why Obama dogs. Have white dogs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> Why doesn't Obama have white dogs? A, a actual Fox News segment at one point. There's so much stuff we forget. I, I know that was the, in reading it. It was really interesting to like go back to some of those moments and be, you know, when you sort of. You know, Obviously, you, you provide a lot of additional context about what you learned since then and the context for why you wrote it. But reading some of these things you remember reading in those moments and then re- recognizing everything that came after was is sort of a fascinating way to sort of revisit those years. But when I was reading your what you wrote about Obama and politics, I thought back to a conversation that President Obama and I had in 2014 where he said to me, that sort of in passing that he thought he might have been elected 10 years too early, that it was sort of the circumstances of that election, post-Bush, Iraq war, expedited the sort of brought before people might have been ready for a black president, you know, particularly a, a black president, Barack Hussein Obama, with mm-hmm. it with, with, with a different background. But do you think that the we were always headed to a place that American politics would be so racialized or uh, was that sort of inevitable, or did Obama did Obama's election expedite it? Just sort of help me understand how you think about that.
0: I think Obama was an extraordinarily good politician, and I think you can see that in the decisiveness of his victories. I think that perhaps you know when he says he was elect you know elected ten years too early. I, I, there was never a point at which the election of a back, black president was not going to provoke backlash. Every major step forward uh in american history for civil rights or um for democracy has been met with backlash um and the backlashes can sometimes be horrifyingly complete or and sometimes they can be um less complete and and progress can be built on uh you know the foundations that are left um i think that we were heading in this direction um regardless of whether uh, Obama got elected. We might not have gotten there as fast without the combination of Barack Obama being elected and Donald Trump being elected. I think you know something that happened during the Obama administration um, was not just racial polarization around public opinion on trivial things that have nothing to do with race, like Portuguese water dogs. But in, you know around 2014 to 2015, when Ferguson happened. Um, I think a lot of Americans started asking themselves, you know, how do we have a black president? Um and yet, race is still such a determining factor in American life we still have there's still so these racial disparities persist um, in spite of what seems like a tremendous amount of symbolic progress. Um, and I think that sort of reevaluation of American history was accelerated by Donald Trump because you have to ask yourself, you know, how does a guy who Um, is running on such explicit white identity politics, nevertheless um, prevail in in an American election to succeed the first black president. Um, But there were structural factors behind, you know, um, both of these things, like simply the racial polarization of the parties preceded both Obama and Donald Trump. I mean, if you look back to 2006, you know, the... One of the, I think, one of the important uh, precipitating events to Trumpism is uh, the huge talk radio backlash to the Bush immigration plan. Um, so, Karl Rove and Bush had this idea of, you know, doing an amnesty um, like Ronald Reagan, um, in which they would legalize or provide a path to legalization to millions of undocumented immigrants in the United States, um, and this would help bring. Latino voters who had supported Bush in very large numbers um, into the Republican column for, you know, a a longer period of time. Um, And there was a huge talk radio backlash, just massive, and it totally killed the planet. Um, And I think, you know, you have to look at that and you can't, you know, I think a big part of the Republican base was waiting for someone like Trump. I think if you look at Mitt Romney, he, uh, you know, he made Bertha jokes in Michigan. I think we've been heading in this direction for a while because of the racial and religious um, and ideological polarization of the two parties. I don't think it would have necessarily happened like this without Obama or without Trump. But I don't, um, you know, but I think we were something like this or something, um, something We were headed toward some kind of reckoning for American democracy, regardless of whether or not Obama had gotten elected, I think. Um, But I do think he was a huge part of it.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioning the 2006 backlash. I was working in the Senate at the time, and it was a huge controversy because Republican conservatives kept mailing, conservative voters kept mailing bricks to the Capitol because they wanted the Senate to build a wall, right? Like right. Again, that seemed insane at the time, but like, as you, there's so much predictive information about how you end up with someone like Trump, mm-hmm. right? And and I think what people like Trump didn't, you know, he
0: didn't like spend ten years, you know, in the stacks of a library reading like Russell Kirk.
1: You know what I mean? He just watched
0: <laughs> yeah. Fox News every day, and then he repeated those grievances back to an audience, which validated them. Um, validated those grievances for them. And in turn, um, that cultivated kind of trust and a kind of intimacy with that audience. Your fears are real. The things that you're afraid of are the things that I'm afraid of, and I'm going to fight those things and protect you. Uh, that was tremendously powerful. Um, and, and, and I think as long as that um, coalition retains a sort of disproportionate Political influence as a result of our political system—it's going. I mean, it's basically—you know—it's hard to imagine the Republican Party taking another path than the one it's it's already on.
1: It is—it's an interesting. It sort of speaks to how um, circumscribed our view of America is to the political system because there's two ways to look at this, right? As you not just analyzing who's going to win an election, but like what forces are dominant in American life and where progress is heading is we analyze it in the context of the six in 10 or seven in 10 people eligible voters who vote Mm -hmm. without ever thinking about the other 30%. And we also, there's two ways to um, talk about the last two elections. One is the non-Trump side, the side that was pushing for diversity and more progressive policies. One, two, overwhelming popular vote victories that are growing in time. Overwhelming. And the other way, yeah. And the other way is, Donald Trump won once and came within a hair of winning the second time because our political system is so screwed up.
0: Mm-hmm. The Electoral College is a squeaker, despite the fact that the anti-Trump majority is, you know, many millions larger um, and growing. And, and growing, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you know the point of the the point of that, you know, the 2006 thing though is to just you know, and that anecdote that you just gave about the BRICS. I mean, look, <laughs> Trump gave people what they wanted, um, you know, and I think part of the Uh, Or, like a certain part of the country wanted. And I think part of the point of the book is to say, you know, he didn't create this. He took advantage of it, Um, but he didn't create it. And, you know, if you think he created it, then the fact that he's gone ends the story for you. Um, But Trumpism is continuing because he didn't create it, because it's something that he merely um, manifested or was able to manipulate or was able to embody in a way that no other Republican politician. Has before, and to some extent, you know, it's it's Trumpism remains an awkward fit for the would-be heirs of Trump because with him, it's really who he is, and with other people, it's kind of a performance. But you know, it persists precisely because uh, our political system um, grants it considerable advantages as a result of the counter-majoritarian levers of American democracy.
1: Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on the book. Everyone go out and buy The Cruelty of the Point. It is an essential read to understand what we went through and what we're still going through. Thank you so much. Thank you
0: so much. Take care.
1: Thanks to Adam for joining us today. Uh, good to be back.
2: Everyone have a great weekend and we will see you next week. Bye, everyone. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitriou, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Nar Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week.